Uh, our Old Testament reading this morning uh, is from Job, and actually, uh, for those of you who uh, are familiar with the Messiah, you might want to sing along with this passage. Um, it's, uh, it's familiar verses from the 19th chapter, and I invite you to listen for a word from the Lord as it is there written. Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book, that they were engraved on a rock with an iron pen and lead forever. For I know that my Redeemer lived, and he shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself. And my eyes shall behold, and not another, how my heart yearns within me. Here ends this reading from God's holy word. Our New Testament reading this morning is from Paul's letter to the Romans, once again this morning from the 10th chapter, beginning at verse 5 and continuing through verse 15. And again, there I invite you to listen for a word from the Lord as it is written. Moses writes concerning the righteousness that comes from the law, that the person who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that comes from faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, on your lips and in your heart, that is, the word of faith, that we proclaim, because if you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For one believes with the heart and so is justified, and one confesses with the mouth and so is saved. The scripture says no one who believes in him will be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all and is generous to all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. But how are they to call on one in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in one of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone to proclaim him. And how are they to proclaim him unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Here ends this reading from God's holy word. It seems likely 
that the audience to which Paul was addressing in his letter to the church in Rome was comprised, like the author himself, primarily of converts from Judaism, for he is invoking the shared memories of their great ancestor in the faith, Moses, as a theological authority of old. His life, his covenant partnership, his leadership in the days of slavery in and redemption from Egypt made him, well, uh, like an ancient E.F. Hutton. Okay, I'll, I'll date myself a little bit here, but I bet most of you also remember those commercials from just a few years ago. They were for the Distinguished Brokerage and Financial Services Company, and they included that tagline, when E.F. Hutton talks, people listen. Well, he and the institution that he founded were building a reputation for being authorities whose instructions you could rely on. You could rely on him to provide you with a secure financial future. Uh, even more so, generations upon generations before, when Moses' name was invoked, well, people gave ear to him because he had accumulated re religious and political street cred. So the apostle begins with Moses, rather than trying to argue based on his own opinions, even though he had himself established an impressive resume and a reputation as a keen religious legal mind of his day and a very zealous Pharisee prior to his encounter with the risen Jesus and his transformation from Saul to Paul. Despite the reverence with which the Jewish people, even of then, in Jesus' day, had for Moses, the apostle sets out to prove that now the teachings from that former age are in for re-examination in light of what has happened in and through this Jesus of Nazareth. In the days of the Old Testament, with the law was the yardstick for the faithful, the way that they could show reverence to God for their covenant faithfulness. Well, now says Paul, the law of grace reigns, and it is not stored in the confines of the ark. Nobody has to go and get the tablets and show them to the people. His analogy is no one has to go and get Christ from his heavenly throne. No one has to go and get Christ from his ministry to the dead. For, he says, it is no longer hidden. It is no longer inaccessible to any. There is no place where the law of grace is off limits. There is no place where it cannot be found. Now, the law of grace is democratized in that it is within reach of all people equally because Jesus came to make it accessible to all. And because that is now the way of the world, barriers between God and mankind that had been erected by us have come down. Heaven has drawn near and salvation is as close as belief 
confession, and repentance. As I said last week, we're going to be getting back to basics in the weeks and months to come here. And and there is little more basic than this. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. All who trust in, all who turn to, all who proclaim Jesus as Lord, they know the assurance of an eternal provision and protection provided by a grace-filled and loving God. This is the heart of the gospel message, the message that Jesus came to reconcile a sinful, fallen world with its creator as the way, the truth, and the life Jesus has bridged that chasm which sin had put between God and humanity. As the new Adam, Christ lived, died, and rose to reverse the curse and set us right again with the Father against whom we had rebelled in our sin. This offer of salvation, Paul reminds us, is universal. It does not depend on our meeting any criteria. There are no background checks. There are no waiting periods. The only test is a test of our hearts. Can we believe this message? Can we believe the good news is really that good? How could anyone believe, argues Paul, if they don't know? We We who do know, we then have an obligation to respond in gratitude for that which we have received in this knowledge. Part of that response is to pass on word of this truth that we have received. Since we here at Old Rehoboth share a heritage that was handed down to us through the generations via the Church of Scotland, let me tell you a little about a faithful Christian doctor from the old country, Sir James Simpson. He pioneered modern anesthesiology through his discovery of chloroform. It was in 1847. He stated that his research into this phenomenon was inspired by Adam and the deep sleep that the Lord had put him under when he created Eve. Now, Simpson is considered a chief founder of the modern medical practice of gynecology, and he served as a professor of obstetric medicine at Edinburgh University. He invented the Simpson forceps. He introduced iron wire sutures, the the precursor to today's staples. He was a pioneer in the field of acupressure. He wrote and he lectured about medicine extensively, but despite all of the contributions throughout his life that he made to healthcare, Dr. Sir James Simpson declared that his greatest discovery was this that I have a Savior. 
Indeed, that is the greatest discovery of any man or woman. In the words of Job that we heard again this morning in our Old Testament reading, I know that my Redeemer liveth. 500 years ago or so now, a catechism for children was written from the Geneva Church in Switzerland. Much of its authorship has been attributed to John Calvin, again, one of our theological ancestors. And a couple of the questions and responses that are contained in this historic document simply summarize, in terms and in concepts, even the very young can grasp the joyful and grace-filled truth that is at the very core of our beliefs that Paul is talking about, they read like this. Question, what is the chief end of human life? Answer, that men should know God by whom they were created. Question, what reason have you for saying so? Answer, because he created us for this and placed us in the world that he might be glorified in us. And it is certainly proper that our life, of which he is the beginning, be directed to his glory. Now, this knowledge is at once humbling, profound, and exhilarating. Not only has it been made known to us, but it begs to be shared and thus amplified. For the gospel is not about a covenant that God made with me or with you or with John Calvin or with Dr. Sir James Simpson, but with the whole world through and in his son, Jesus. And so, again, the words of the good doctor from the land of the thistle. But again, he wrote... I looked and saw Jesus, my substitute, scourged in my stead, dying on the cross for me. I looked and cried and was forgiven. And it seems to be my duty to tell you of that Savior to see if you will not also look and live. Fast forward a couple of hundred years to today. Even though we may not be gathering together the way we were last year at this time, even though we are more socially distant, quarantined, isolated from folks than ever before we've been in our lifetimes, even in the midst of all this, we are still able to fulfill this calling of the Christian life. I'll grant you, that it may, and it likely does, look different than it used to, but we are no less capable today of doing the very same work to which we have been called and for which we were created. The world is adapting to working from home, to learning from home, to wearing masks and staying six feet from other bipeds. As Christians, we too can adapt, and we are 
so that our mission gets accomplished. Now, how providential is all this? I was wondering, in the week that the appointed New Testament epistle includes these very questions, includes Paul's exhortation to his brothers and sisters in Rome to be about these very things, but how are they to call on one in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in one of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone to proclaim him? And how are they to proclaim him unless they are sent? And this same week, our podcast, which includes the weekly scripture readings, the anthem and the sermon, uh, has reached out to additional audiences. We've already, over the past couple of months that we have been recording and sending out these services through a variety of means to different countries, far and wide, have, we've picked up listeners that have probably, uh, well, they definitely would not have otherwise heard the words that were coming from this sanctuary. They are across the region. They are throughout our country. They span from Las Vegas, Nevada, all the way across the pond to Paris, France, and beyond. And we thank you for your faithful tuning in to the message from here at Rehoboth. Just this week, we submitted for syndication uh, this podcast to a provider on the Indian subcontinent, as well as to Amazon Music and Audible Books, who are working to collaboratively introduce their own set of podcasts to be available shortly on those channels. And also, we've submitted to the popular service called Pandora, which, if you're young enough, young enough you may have uh, run across. We are continuing to increase our potential worldwide audience as we reach out with the good news of the gospel. And you are as well. You are communicating with family and friends, maybe in a different format than before, but you will continue to reach out. You're on social media. You're communicating that way. Your very presence in your families and in your close relationships, you're witnessing to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Those things have not changed. And those things need never change. For we are called to continue to be faithful, to be joyful, to be true. The very heart of the message is the same as it was when it was shared by Paul, putting ink to parchment or vellum 2,000 years ago. It puts the lie to Marshall McLuhan's assertion that the medium is the message. 
for at least as far as we in the church are concerned, the gospel. That's the message, though the ways that we are sharing it have been evolving for centuries. The responsibility that each believer has been given, the mission with which we as the church have been charged is, as we like to say, the proclamation of the gospel for the salvation of humankind. And there it is again, the very heart of the matter, the victory of Jesus that we talk about. Accepting this truth, that's the unmerited gift that we've been given by our grace-filled God, sharing what we have come to know is our gift of gratitude in response. It's what we return. It can be work indeed, but it's worth remembering that it is joy-filled work. My seminary dean and professor of theology once wrote a book about this very thing in which he observed a church battered by the culture, facing divisions within itself, unclear as to how the future will unfold, can nevertheless no great joy in the struggle to bear witness to the victory of Jesus Christ. And so it is, I believe, with us. In the receiving of grace, there is great joy to be had. In, in the returning of grace, there is great joy to be had as well. The word that has been given us in Scripture and in the flesh of the Son of God is a word of grace and overwhelming joy. Our invitation to invite others to come and see ought to be the same. It should tickle us from the top of our heads to the soles of our beautiful feet. And for that, we may truly say, thanks be to God. And amen.